Well, here we are at a session four of a seminar on racial harmony, and I hope it's being recorded because uh, all the people that want to hear this aren't able to be here tonight, and I want feedback from them. Um, all humans are of one origin by divine design, the meaning and significance of race, part two. Now, let me tell you what happened at the end of part one that caused me to, to do this for part two. Uh, when I was done, what's this, two weeks ago or so, uh, you remember I, I argued that uh, the biologically race is negligible, it's just not significant. Little, I gave you statistics about the difference in chromosomal makeup, you know, within a race is bigger than between races typically. And so if you're looking for a, you know, a liver transplant or something, it's just as likely that you'll find a better one in a different race than in your own race because there's nothing about race that would make it more likely that it would be a better liver. Those kinds of things I was pointing out last time. And, and so I was making a big deal out of the fact that being human is vastly more important than being any color. And I use the analogy of, you know, if, if you're white or black or red or brown or some shade in between, that'd be like a little millimeter down at the IDS tower. And if you're human, that'd be like the height of the IDS tower all, all the way into the sky. In other words, being human is infinitely more significant, I think, than being any particular race. Okay, so I stressed that last time, and I still believe that. However, what the group that cares so much about these issues and whom I'm leaning on pretty heavily to give me helpful feedback said at the end of that was, well, uh, two problems with the way you said it tonight. Number one, um, when a majority culture person like you talks like that, the way it is heard often by minorities is, so what's the big deal? You're saying, so what's the big deal? The white majority say culture in America will hear that, that emphasis last week. Come on, we're all human. So what's the big deal? Just relax minorities and be human which they hear as relax and be white, be like us. We don't have any problem living in this culture. Why do you have a problem living in this culture? You see how, how naive that can tend to be and sound? Because if you're the dominant majority, say in a church like this, almost just walk in, you look around and say, whoa, it's, there's not a lot of color here. And so you can just start to feel like this is normal. This is just the way it is. And, and so what's the issue? Whereas if you're sitting there and you look around and there aren't as many people like you, you're aware of that. You're aware of that. You, you, you live with that consciousness and you walk through life like that. And when you start being treated differently because you are not of the majority culture or color, then for you, it's always an issue. It's always there. Whether you want it to be or not, it's there. It's just presented to you. You're not you know, bent out of shape by it and trying to make it an issue. It's just there. It's presented to you as an issue day after day because the 
if you would let, and we will let them talk in, in weeks to come, let minorities talk about the little things that let them know day after day that they're not of the majority culture. So that was one response. John, you, you made, it came, you, yes, you said, you said, I gave a little proviso that I knew that might hurt that way, but he wasn't enough. Okay, that's response number one. Number two was I felt more substantial. That one's sort of culturally sensitizing to me, and that's good for me to hear. This one is more substantial. The Sunday before that Wednesday night, which is what, two weeks ago, I had preached on the Martin Luther King Sunday, and I had said from Revelation 5-9, you remember, that diversity is so important, God paid for it with the blood of his son. Thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe, people, tongue, and ethne, ethnic group. And I drove with all my might that Sunday morning that to God, this thing is really important that he would pour out the blood of his own son to make sure his bride is colorful, manifold in color and, and culture. And so the question was, how you fit tonight, two weeks ago on Wednesday, together with that? That seemed to elevate the importance of diversity and race. And two weeks ago on Wednesday night, it seemed like you said, so it's small, it's small, little teeny, there's no significance to it. Humanity is important, but but racial differences aren't significant. So put those two together. That is a good question. That's what tonight is designed to do, okay? So this is part two. How do you put together Wednesday night session three, whatever, two weeks ago or whatever it was, and Sunday morning, Martin Luther King Day? All right, that's our agenda. So the first five points were last time, now six. So when I do this on a weekend sometime, it'll hang together a lot better than it is when you have to take so much time in between. Does the biological triviality of the differences between races mean that race is insignificant? So that's the question I'm posing at, uh, coming off of uh, the feedback I got last time. So here's a couple of responses to that. Minorities, I'm just repeating now something I already said. Minorities tend to hear the assertion of racial triviality, biological triviality, as an excuse for the majority to say, what's the big deal? There's no problem. Just be human. Stop making an issue of race, which translated means relax and be like us. That's what I heard last time. I think we need to hear that. So I want to avoid that. Here's second response creating the issue. Moreover, Revelation 5.9 implies that racial diversity is significant to God. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So that's just a restatement of the problem that I just articulated. That verse teaches that Christ died in order that there would be all the colors, languages, cultures represented in the blood-bought bride of Christ. 
This elevates the significance of race in God's purposes and our relationships. The question. Well, then, is there a contradiction between saying that racial differences are biologically trivial and that they are theologically and socially significant? Well, that's the way I would clarify the question. And you can already hear part of the solution, I think, in the way the question is posed. Biologically trivial, I think that's still true, and that they are theologically and socially significant. Is that a contradiction? Did I contradict myself? No. Oh, try not to. Both are true, and there are reasons for stressing both. So now why, why, what are those reasons? Why would we want to stress both of those? Reasons to stress the biological insignificance of race. Number one. It is important to maintain the biological insignificance of race in order to preserve the full humanity of all races and infinite significance of being human created in the image of God without reference to physical or cultural distinctives. Being human is infinitely more important than white or black or yellow or red or brown or any shade in between. It is risky, I admit now, it is risky to say this in view of the warning that I've already talked about, but the risk of not saying it is greater. Because I think a bigger issue globally is human rights, not white, black, yellow, red, brown rights. In other words, we need to be able to say to somebody hauling away Jews to gas chambers, it's inhuman. Forget about it. I mean, just let's talk about people created in the image of God here. Let's not think about the relative importance of Jewishness in God's colorful makeup. I mean, that would be an argument. I think that would be a valid argument to say, don't try to snuff out Jewish people. They belong in the kingdom. But the first argument is they're people. They're not cats or dogs or, or foxes that you want to get off your field. So I want to preserve that argument. I want to be able to say that with power everywhere I go. That people are people. Human. I know that when, when my little Taltha grows up and starts asking the hard questions about her identity and, and all kinds of relational issues are going to emerge in this, in this transracial family, I'm going to say over and over and over and over again to her, you are a human being created in the image of God, designed by God with absolutely unique purposes, and don't you ever forget it. And then we'll talk about the big, big cultural issues, but first, that issue is going to be number one. That's my first reason for, for stressing the biological insignificance, because if you start to creep in with the biological significance of race, then you start to build a ground for mega prejudice and mega abuses, which I think leads me to number two, I'm not sure. Number two, response to reasons to stress biological insignificance 
It is important to maintain the biological insignificance of race in order to preserve the legitimacy of interracial marriage. Now, you might, you might say, well, is it legitimate? Well, I'm going to deal with that. But just, I'll, I mean, I'm tipping my hand right now where I am coming from and where I'm going. You know, it's not a new thing to me. You, know, you might think, oh, you adopted a black daughter, so you got to believe in that. Look, that issue was dealt with a long time ago, and then it was dealt with again. When I was in seminary, I'll bring you this sometime and read you parts of it. When I was in seminary, I was 22 to 25 in seminary. So we're talking 30 years ago. I was in a class with Lewis Smeads on ethics. Lewis Smeads, good teacher. And that's what I wrote my paper about. Interracial marriage. 30 years ago, this was a big issue for me. Because I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. That was real close. And uh, I heard all the arguments. I had a... I had a, a relative, what's called a relative, leave it. <laughs> I'll tell you who it is. She's dead now. Uh, who said, she's in her southern drawl, she said, you never seen the bluebirds and the redbirds mate. You never seen the blackbirds and the whitebirds mate. So you would never see a white and a black marry. That was just... That, I grew up with that. That was just in the air. So this is a huge issue. Bethlehem is going to face this issue big time because of, of uh, all these kids growing up in this church who are kids of color. In our families, no less, right? So we got to nail this one down. We got to nail it down in principle. Then we got to nail it down in our gut. Those are not exactly the same. So, one way to guard against arguing against interracial marriage is to make sure that you don't elevate biological distinctions. So last year, uh, two weeks ago, when I was lingering over that, that was no mistake. I want to minimize the biological differences between the races, and that's one of the reasons. Here's another one. I got this information that I'm going to quote here from, from Ken Young, who... Can you hear? There you are. Okay. Give you credit here. You wonder if I read your stuff. <laughs> it is important to maintain the biological insignificance of race to provide part of the hedge against the efforts of some to justify slavery or segregation or other inequities, say like some kind of uh, uh, medical testing. You need a guinea pig? Well, let's get some lesser human. Maybe human, but kind of a lesser kind of human. So it won't be so bad if it goes bad here and they die. You want to guard against that with any price. And so one way would be to say, biologically, we're not talking about different species here of any sort. And then Ken gave me some of these quotes here, just to show you the kind of thing historically that we're dealing with. Here's David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher. I am apt to suspect the Negroes, in general, all the other species of men, of all the other species of men, to be naturally inferior to whites. There never was any civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even any individual eminent in action or speculation. No ingenious manufacturers among them, no arts, no sciences, 
such a uniform and constant difference could not ha- happen in so many countries and ages if nature had not made an original distinction betwixt these breeds of men. That's pretty offensive. And it's, it's, it's rooted, slavery and, and other things would be rooted then in a claim to nature having done something biologically and you've got uh, intrinsically inferior group. Immanuel Kant, the Negroes of Africa have received from nature no intelligence that rises above the foolish. He's one of the most influential philosophers that's ever lived. The difference between the two races is thus a substantial one. It appears to be just as great in respect of the faculties of the mind as color. So, those are my three reasons for why I want to stress the biological insignificance of racial differences. Before I go on to give you uh, reasons for maintaining the theological and social significance of race, I've just talked about the insignificance of biological differences. Now I'm going to talk about the significance of theological and social differences. Any feedback or question about what I just said? Yeah. Uh, I understand you're wanting to stress the and not Well, that does follow from my sermon the other Sunday, and I realize now as you ask it, I don't know if that's in my outline here. So, back to the drawing board. <laughs> um, but talk, talk to us about what you would uh, like to see. What, tell me what you have in mind. I, I have certain things in my mind when you say that and realize I just drew a blank as I was getting ready. Go ahead. What do you mean? This is so good. This is so good. So helpful to me. I got so many blind spots, it's unbelievable. So let's just talk for a minute about what I need to change in what I just said. <laughs> how, uh, how do I say what I just said? Because it doesn't seem like now what you've just said that I can uh, just add that as an, another point now. Because say... To say, uh, okay, now next point. Well, trivializing doesn't mean, I, I know you well enough to mean it doesn't mean you can't appreciate Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, relatively speaking, the triviality may still stand in terms of over against humanity, whether you have, whether you have any particular kind of hair or not, compared to whether you're human. I mean, everything in me says that is insignificant. But you're pointing out, okay, but, uh, everything's insignificant about life in life compared to humanity, you might say. Seeing is, and yet how we cherish our sight or something like that. So, 
Um, I don't know, though, maybe I shouldn't talk in terms of biological insignificance. Maybe I need a new way to say it. Anybody want to make a suggestion? In order to... Ken? You know, you're, you're almost articulating the very tension. The, the phrase, get beyond and appreciate our intention with each other. In my head, they are. And so, uh, what, I, what I have coming clear in my mind right now is that there are two, two ways to move to the beyond of natural relationships. Where you don't make a barrier out of a difference. One would be to not think about the difference at all and treat it as though it is a nothing, it's not there. And the other, which Tim is putting his finger on, is to like it. <laughs> like it. Not, not ignore it, but see it, taste it, like it. Like color differences. Like hair differences. Like facial shape differences. Like sound differences. Voice, voices. There's a quality to a black voice that's different. Go ahead. Yeah. But Melvin, are you sure? In other words, yeah, take the word, the word focus. If focus on it, we might not glorify God. But I'm, one of my arguments coming here, and maybe I just miss, maybe I just mislabeled this thing when I put uh, reasons to maintain the theological and social significance, I think I am, come to think of it, going to include some biological traits here because I think one of the reasons you look the way you do, different from me, is for the glory of God. And if that's not seen and appreciated, God gets less glory. That, that's implicit in one of my arguments. So, this is very, very helpful. I've got it written down. Any other Chips in before I... Let me give you the rest of it. Go ahead, Paul. You want to try? I guess neither. In thought, I think what I'd like to hear is that as believers, we are in to regard others more highly than ourselves. Yes. And I think that also addresses the
All ages of men were dwelt in all ages of the earth, and have determined the time before the point the mountains of their habitation, and they should seek after the Lord. It happened, they went to feel after them, and find that we do not find every one of them. And there's a lot of things that are very striking to me about that. Keep it, keep it short, Paul, because I'm not sure everybody can hear you. Say, say one of those things. Well, this, this idea uh, that God has appointed the bounds of their habitation, and the times that humans are separated by time, the generation, yep. generation, we are separated from our forefathers by death and by time. We're separated from other humanity by geographically. Right. We're separated in so many ways, and God is inspired to, to instill in us a, a sense of alienation that works to reconcile us to Him. That's good. That's good. You know, one of the things you said triggers a clarification I need to make here. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've said it explicitly, but the way I'm constructing this seminar is from natural uh, arguments to redemptive arguments. In other words, I haven't even come to Ephesians 2 and that issue uh, and the, the work of Christ. Uh, you know, you pointed out, count others better than yourself. Well, that's that's built on the incarnation, Philippians 2. And so the effect of, of redemption and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the commands to love one another, all of that is going to come. It's going to have effect on our relations to each other. Um, let me give you the rest of what I have here, and then we can talk a little more if there's time. The reasons to maintain the theological and social significance of race. And, and next time I do this, I'm going to have it clarified, and there'll be a section, either I'll rethink how to say it or have a section on uh, why the biological differences, though trivial, are significant, or something like that, and, and should be appreciated. Okay, here's reason number one for the social and theological significance. I think I have five of these reasons. It is important to maintain the theological and social significance of race because minimizing this significance will de facto function to smother minority identity with majority culture. In other words, without this balance, the insignificance of race, biologically, would in reality mean the insignificance only of minority race and culture. Majority races and cultures do not feel that their race and culture is significant precisely because they take it so much for granted as the norm. If they were put in a position of a minority, their own race and culture would not seem so insignificant. So we must maintain the theological and social significance of race for the sake of dealing justly and wisely with the present-day realities of inequity and injustice. That's not a new thing. I've said that already, but I wanted to give it as the first reason for why thinking of the significance of race theologically and socially is important. Number two. It is important to maintain the theological and social significance of race because in God's wise providence, racial and ethnic diversity has come into being. 
and is embraced and not erased. I think those two facts need to go together, lest anybody argue, well, it came into being by accident, or it came into being by sin, or it came into being by judgment, or whatever, and it shouldn't be valued for that reason. But I think when you realize that it came into being providentially by God's design and is embraced, not erased, by God's redeeming purposes in the death of Jesus, according to Revelation 5, 9, then the significance of it rises. So it's created by God, brought about by him, and it is embraced by Christ in his redeeming work, Revelation 5, 9. I will address in, in the coming weeks something about this, uh, the curse of Ham and that sort of argument. That's what I was writing my paper on 30 years ago. I'll be back to that. Argument number three. It is important to maintain the theological and social significance of race because there is a beauty and power of praise to God that comes from unity and diversity that is greater than that which comes from unity alone. Psalm 96, 3 and 4 connects the evangelizing of all peoples with the quality of praise that God deserves. Notice the argument here. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Notice the word for the extraordinary greatness of the praise which the Lord should receive is the ground and impetus of our mission to the nations, all the nations, all the ethnic groups. In other words, there's something about God's worth that will not be displayed fully if there isn't an ingathering from diversity, from all the rest. And, and when you think about that, the analogy that came to my mind is simply this choir that sings here. If they sing only unison, that's pretty. But when they break into parts and, and the rich, deep sound of the basses reverberate, and the high, smooth notes of the soprano tend to break a, a glass. And the altos come in with this strong, feminine, lower sound. And the tenors with a strong, higher, male sound. And that comes together. There's something more there than unison that reflects the beauty of what's being sung about. So, if you were to ask, why did God do so much diversity in the world, and you could point not just to race, but to, I mean, God has lavished this world with incredible diversity. Take fish, take dogs, take horses, take whatever. I mean, there is so much diversity. Or take any one race. Is it not amazing? You can fingerprint people and out of six billion, tell who's who? I mean, who attends to fingerprints? Or you can do it with, with uh, they, they have this new iris of the eye thing where you can take a picture of the iris of the eye. And because of those little, if you get up close and look at yourself in the mirror, you can see these little, little shapes in the iris of your eye. And they can take pictures of those. And those are unique among all the six billion people. And so you can type people according to the iris of their eye. Or just walk through an airport. They say, well, now, given all these people... The statistical likelihood that two of them are going to look just alike is very high. And you can't find them. Twins are born. I grew up with Joel and Carol. 
those are two guys that I grew up with were twins. And, uh, and everybody at first glance said they're absolutely alike. Having lived with them and grown up with them, they, I could tell them apart backwards, frontwards, sideways, top down. There were differences on every hand in those twins once you just looked at them long enough. Diversity is just incredible. Now, why did God do it that way? He, he can do cookie cutter. He, he could do cloning. And he didn't. God doesn't clone humans. Every one of them is unique, different. And so I think if you say, well, take the big picture of humanity as in terms of ethnic groups, there's a reason for that. And it is because there's more beauty of God reflected when those pieces fit together than when they're treated as non-existent or insignificant. Four, it is important to maintain the theological and social significance of race because the fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty, Jesus Christ, for example, increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. This is a little different, this argument. Sounds like it might be the same, but it's not. It's not the same argument. If a work of art is regarded as great, now the work of art here is Jesus. If a work of art is regarded as great among a small and like-minded group of people, but not by anyone else, the art is probably not truly great. Its qualities are such that it does not appeal to the deep universals of our hearts, but only to provincial biases. But if an, a work of art continues to win more and more admirers, not only across decades, like Paul said, times are different, but across uh, and centuries, but also across many racial and ethnic groups, then its greatness is irresistibly manifested. Thus, let me stop there, just see if you get what I'm saying. If, if you are, are a, a, a person, or, a, or if there's a work of art, whatever analogy you like to use, and there's a little group of people, and they say, oh, isn't that great? And it's at the walker, and it's hanging on the wall, and there's this little, clo little cluster of people that love to go down there and look at this donut hanging on the wall with a nail through it or something. And say, this is great. This is great. He said, really? Well, I hadn't noticed. And in fact, almost nobody notices. It's a little teeny clique of artists who, who think that's great. And they will die and go out of existence and, and it will not be viewed as great anymore. But some artwork is just hanging around century after century after century. What is it? What is it with the Mona Lisa? I mean, is that just kind of something put over on us? What is it with Rembrandt? What is it with music that keeps lasting? Most of the music we sing will be here today, gone tomorrow. And there's a place for some folk music that's here today and gone tomorrow. But there ought to be some greatness that is here today and tomorrow and the next day until Jesus comes. Jesus is like that. The more uh, time goes by, the more diversity gets attracted to Jesus. There's something that he's appealing to deep down beneath the surface differences. So I think it's important that that be seen by how many people get attracted to him from different groups. And we need to emphasize that. 
Thus, when Paul says, praise the Lord, all nations, let all the peoples praise him in Romans 15, 11, He is saying that there's something about God that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse racial and ethnic people group in the world. Let me just stop right there. I was at Moody this morning, an Indian Student, India, Indian, stood up. She was dressed in, in a, I guess, national garb, some kind. She prayed in front of these 3,500 people there where I was going to preach in just a few minutes. Very beautiful, articulate prayer. The president stood forward and did a little interview with her. And as she articulated her deep, intelligent, strong, passionate love for my Christ... My Christ, he felt so big. Then if just an American girl had done that, or another guy had done that, she's Indian, she's female, and she's intelligently, articulately saying, my Christ is great to her. And I'm saying, that makes him feel more great to me. That she could experience that in India, and out of her background, Makes me feel like he's really great. He's really great. And if you just walk through person after person from culture after culture saying the greatness of Jesus, then you say, hmm, I think I might be getting the significance of this theologically. His true greatness will be manifest in the breadth of the diversity of those who perceive and cherish his beauty. His excellence will be shown to be higher and deeper than the parochial preferences that make us happy most of the time. His appeal will be to the deepest, highest, largest capacities of the human soul. Thus, the diversity of the source of admiration will testify to his incomparable glory. Number five, I think it's the last one. It is important to maintain the theological and social significance of race because the strength and wisdom and love of a leader, Jesus Christ, is magnified in proportion to the diversity he can inspire to follow him with joy. If you can only lead a small uniform group of people, your leadership qualities are not as great as if you can win a following from a large group of very diverse people. Let me stop there. I'm going to give you a biblical background for that. That's, in other words, I'm putting another twist on the same kind of argument. The aesthetic thing is not the same as the leadership thing. So... I would be seen, this is a dangerous analogy to use, but I'm, I'm here the upfront person, so I'll risk it anyway. I would be seen as a more effective leader, a more gifted leader, a more charismatic leader, if I could lead red and yellow, black and white somewhere together, than if I could only lead white people somewhere together. i say, well, he's an effective white leader, and that would be nice, or... Lots of blacks are effective black leaders, and so on. But when a man or a woman can blow a trumpet of truth and have following in their train, like Martin Luther King did, for example, lots of different colors, then you say, hmm, what is it? 
There's something unusual here. Now, that's the way Jesus is. Jesus, there's something unusual about this person. So when he gets trumpeted for all he's worth and he stands forth from his word and says, follow me, follow me. And people of every shade in the world follow him. Then his leadership, power and wisdom really shines. That's my point here on this last one. Paul's understanding of what is happening in his missionary work among the nations is that Christ is demonstrating his greatness in winning the obedience from the peoples. Look at this, Romans fifteen eighteen. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the nations, the ethne, the various ethnic groupings. So Christ is doing this, not Paul. It is not Paul's missionary expertise that is being magnified as more and more diverse peoples choose to follow Christ. It is the greatness of Christ. He is showing himself superior to all other leaders. This is my last paragraph. The last phrase of Psalm 96.3 shows the leadership competition that is going on in world missions. And right here. Declare his glory among the nations. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, there are competitors, in other words, to Jesus in the world. There are other gods, other religions with their gods. We should declare the glory of God among the nations because in this way he will be shown, in this way he will show his superiority over other gods that make pretentious claims to lead the peoples. The more diverse the people groups who forsake their gods to follow the true God, the true Christ, the more visible is God's superiority, Christ's superiority over all his competitors. Now, I'm almost hesitant to say it, but I must say it. Take two minutes and tell me what I left out in this one. What comes to your mind now? Anybody that would help me make this better the next time I do this? Anything glaring like Tim's? Yes. Precisely. Yeah. The, the point Todd was making was that the, the diversity of all things is a parable of the infinite richness and diversity in the Godhead. Surely that is a biblical thing to say. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And he could have said lots of other things. You know, the fish are telling the glory of God. And humans are telling the glory of God. Being created in the image of God in various colors and shapes and sizes and so on is telling the glory of God. So I'm sure that's true. And when those uh, varied human dimensions can find unity in him, in worship, then you have something to say to the world about God. That's what this whole thing's about in my mind. The whole thing is about at the, at the relational, small level of personal, at the corporate level of gatherings and worship, at the uh, manifest level where the world is watching in social dimensions. If the church could pull this off better than we do, in terms of the diversity coming together in unity under Jesus and under the Father, he would get more glory. That's to me why I'm driven by this. Anything else before we close?
Well, go ahead. One more, Don. Yeah, Don. Yeah, good, good point. Neither. And that's probably not an accident that there was a Semitic people chosen in Abraham who, uh, you try to type them. They have their own peculiar features, some of them. And then there's a shading there that's, uh, neither. So, you know, I'm, I'm real in favor of, uh, it, I'm a little hesitant about portraits of Jesus at all. And there's, you know, an argument about whether that's breaking the first commandment. You know, don't make any graven images. So don't have pictures of Jesus in your house. Um, the reason I'm not a stickler on that is because Jesus became incarnate. And therefore, we know he had a face. God the Father didn't have a face except insofar as he and the Son are one. Jesus had a face. And so even though we don't know what it looked like, I think renderings of it, to show various things are okay. And if we're going to do that, they should be real diverse. I think they should be real diverse. Because you lock in on that famous one. I don't know what it's called. With the long hair and kind of the idyllic face and the blue eyes. That's absolutely absurd. Uh, but I think there should probably be black portrayals of Jesus. And, and uh, white portrayals of Jesus. And Chinese portrayals of Jesus. And everybody knows that they're not accurate. They all know. I mean, there isn't one that's accurate. That's why it's legitimate to do lots of inaccurate ones. Because you just say, we all know, we all know that we don't know what he looked like. So what we want to say with our inaccurate Jesus is something true about Jesus. Namely, he's there for everybody. Well, let me pray and then uh, hang out if, if you don't want to round in the snow right away. Because I can see little kids with aprons on back there, which means there must be something worth Let's pray. Father, we're, we're on our way. I called it, what, three weeks ago, a mighty long journey. It's a mighty long journey. And I pray that you'll keep this group and our church and, and more and more on the road together. Just help us learn from each other. Help us correct each other. Help us to be patient with each other. And then help us to love each other. Help us to ignore when we ought to ignore differences and love and appreciate when we ought to love and appreciate differences. Help us to minimize race when it ought to be minimized and maximize it when it ought to be maximized. Oh, for wisdom. Oh, for wisdom to how to live together in love. So come and do that and bless our fellowship time now as we linger. And, and those who go, keep them safe on the road, Lord. Get us all home through the snow, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here.